Hi, we're Eleanor and Carrie. We're the hosts of the Good Robot Podcast, and join us as we ask the experts: What is good technology? Is it even possible? And what does feminism have to bring to this conversation? If you want to learn more about today's topic, head over to our website, where we've got a full transcript of the episode and a specially curated reading list with work by or picked by our experts. But until then, sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. Today, we're talking to Nima Ear, a technologist, artist, and founder of Policy with two L's, a civic technology organization based in Kampala, Uganda. We discuss feminism and building AI for the world's fastest growing population, what feminism means in African contexts, and the challenges of working with different governments and regional bodies like the African Union. I hope you enjoy the show. Thank you so much for being with us. So could you tell us a bit about what you do and what brings you to the topic of feminism, gender and technology? Sure. So as you know, my name is Nima Ayer and I'm a technologist and an artist. I am the founder of Policy, that's policy with two L's, which is a civic technology organization based in Kampala, Uganda. And we work at the intersection of data design and technology. We're very interested in things like feminist internet, looking at the intersection of gender and technology, looking at how data is used or not used, looking at um, digital rights, data governance, really anything along the whole spectrum of data used, you know, from, you know, conceptualizing how you collect the data, collecting it, how it's used, how it's governed, and eventually how it's used in innovation and digital spaces to shape our lives. Fantastic. Thank you. So we'd love to know what your and what policies take is on our million dollar question, or really our billion dollar question, which is what is good technology? Is it even possible? And if it is, how do we work towards it? That is such a good question. So what is good technology? I think it's anything that improves our lives without harming people. And you know, you could really think of anything as good technology, like the wheel, um, you know, the bicycle, the bicycle is apparently one of the most empowering inventions for women across the world. And I would say it has very few downsides. Like, yes, you could get in an accident on a bicycle. But overall, I think, you know, it has all the, the positive effects of, um, you know, getting you from one place to another, improving your life, improving logistics. And I think generally that's something positive. You know, you could think about vaccines. And I know that this conversation is a bit more in the direction of digital technology. And I think that things become very tricky in that space because all of us bring our own biases to our work and to what we think good is. And I like to imagine that for the most part, when people build digital technology, they have good intentions, but we have so many blind spots. And this is one thing that at Policy that we're trying to do is to make these blind spots more obvious. So, you know, the the very common take is that many software developers, for example, tend to be located in the global north, maybe you're in Silicon Valley, maybe you've never been anywhere in Africa. And so it's very difficult for you to understand what our context is like. Even when you make digital platforms, you're basing them on internet speeds of where you were born, where you were raised, not knowing you know, all the gaps that we have when your program takes a lot of data, it's very expensive. It doesn't load properly. A lot of people have older technology. A lot of people have lower digital skills. So maybe when you do your user testing, you know, you're doing it for a certain type of people and that leaves out, you know, a big proportion of the world. 
you build all your content, perhaps in English or other quite colonial languages that many people can't use. So I think that I like to believe, as I said, that everyone comes in from a positive angle, but we have to be aware that the world is such a diverse place. And how can you include as many diverse opinions and life experiences in what we're aiming to build so that we can all have better experiences in our life using these technologies? And of course, there's some there's some very clear cut bad technologies, right? Where people come in with intentions, you know, where you're building something for surveillance or you're building something that's going to cut off people's social benefits. You know, you're building tools that you somehow know can have a negative repercussion on marginalized people. And that's a clear case, you know, that you somehow do know that these algorithms you're building and your biased data sets can definitely target some groups of people. So I think that's keeping that in mind that there's some very obvious good ones, there's some very obvious bad ones, and that we constantly have to strive to make sure that we're moving in the direction of building technology that imparts the least amount of harm. Absolutely. Thank you. And I want to expand a bit more actually on that topic of harm uh, by asking what kinds of gendered harms resulting from technology is your organization policy specifically attempting to counter? Right. So um, for me, one of the big ones that is is not the sexiest of topics, you know, when we're talking about more advanced technologies is generally access. So, for example, in Uganda, where we're based, the statistics on access are anywhere between 30 to 50 percent of the population has access to the Internet. And there is a very uh, large digital gender divide as well, which is very prominent in sub-Saharan Africa. I think GSMA puts it somewhere between 30 to 40%. So if you look at it, like 30% of people have access to internet, and then the gap between men and women is 30%. So, you know, from the get-go, many women do not have access to the internet, do not have access to technology. And then what are the harms that happen because you do not have access? You do not have access to information. You don't have access to educational opportunities, to employment opportunities, and who is really getting left behind in these conversations. So it's kind of tricky where I am, where, you know, on one day I'm trying to, you know, look at what are the benefits and harms of AI on women. And on the other hand, it's like, okay, but we actually don't really have any data on most of these people. How can we build anything that really works for them? How do we even know how they feel about anything? Because, you know, in some ways they're really disconnected from very basic conversations and definitely from more of these more complex conversations on um, gender and technology. So it's a very tricky and complex issue. And then, you know, if we move from that, then there's more um, looking at how technologies, for example, will impact something like jobs, for example. So uh, women tend to be less skilled. They tend to have less um, digital literacy. So how does that impact them in terms of how can they earn income if, you know, you know, as they say, you know, tech is coming to take our jobs. And there's, those are the, less skilled jobs that might be taken. So that's the example on the on the other end where technology can impact harms in those ways in terms of your economic, your social, your you know, political well-being, for example. So what makes these problems so difficult to solve? And going forwards, even with these huge challenges in mind, how can we go about trying to tackle them? I think just generally looking at, you know, the benefits and harms of technology, I think it's so difficult to solve these problems because humans are very, very, very complex creatures. Like you could build the most beautiful 
technology for humans to come together and share their brilliant ideas. And then you just end up with a platform full of trolls. And it's because human beings suck. And like, as, as amazing as they are, and you know, in the capacity to create beautiful things, there are also many negative people. And you cannot use technology as a tool to fix what is inherently wrong with society. If you are, if people are racist, you cannot fix technology so that they're not racist. You're just putting a bandaid over it. And in general, it, you need to see this change in society and then see that reflected on platforms. So I think, you know, recently when there was an incident two days ago, and many people blame technology platforms for not addressing the racism that was very rampant on social media platforms. But you can also only do so much. I do feel for technology companies. I do feel like, the task they have been given is very, very, very immense. And I think just because of the complexity of humans, of the problem that so many of these issues are so, so, so difficult to fix. And I don't have the answers, obviously. I think many people don't have the answers when it comes to things like, especially content moderation. And it's interesting at this point that, you know, I think that so many of the jobs that exist today, like did not exist 20 years ago, because they're new problems. And I think they they require a lot of collaboration, a lot of working with different communities to understand, like, what are the root causes? What are the problems? What are the solutions? So, you know, going back to what I said earlier, in that, when you think about content moderation, for example, like, you have to take the perspective of different countries, you cannot do this job alone, sitting in Silicon Valley, or in London, or, or wherever. So yeah, it's just a, it's a difficult problem with no clear solution. (laughs) Absolutely. And this actually links really nicely to something we discussed in one of our previous episodes with Anita Williams, who uh, used to work at Google and specifically working on these issues of content moderation, but also various kinds of platform abuse. Um, But I wanted to pivot slightly and ask you specifically about um, feminism and your own feminist approaches. We are a feminist podcast, but feminism also means really different things to different people. So we wanted to ask, uh, what does feminism mean to you? Great question. To me, feminism really means freedom. I think it means freedom to be who you want to be, freedom to, you know, seek the opportunities that you want to pursue your dreams. And when you are in, you know, different types of patriarchal systems, many, 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 many women across the world do not have any of these freedoms. And when you think about, you know, the usual definition of equality, I think that's a bit tricky because if you would say that you wanted to be equal to men, for example, but it's also like there's so many differences in men, you know, you want to be, and for example, just taking Uganda again, there's so many class differences, there's so many ethnic differences. And so when you say something like you want to be equal, but like to which man? Because you know, a man from a lower socioeconomic class has a very different amount of opportunities and rights and freedoms compared to a man of a higher socioeconomic status. So for me, I feel I I do feel like that definition could be a little bit problematic because there isn't really equality, you know, even among um, the male gender. So I really look at it as as just having this this freedom to really thrive and succeed in life. I like that definition. And you're completely right. It's so contextual, and it should keep on shifting. And one of the things that we love about the show is that we 
can hear these different kind of shifting definitions of feminism and equality and what they mean in different contexts and the work that they do as terms. I wanted to talk about your reports because you've written these beautiful reports with policy and one of them's on the use of AI in Africa, how it impacts women in particular. And you talked a little bit about that at the beginning of the show. So we wanted to know how you want this important research to be used to make positive change going forwards. Sometimes things in the world of technology are complicated and need careful explaining. Sometimes they just need a little hard truth. I don't think anyone is going to buy a banana with crypto at any point in the foreseeable future. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, the host of Slate's What Next TBD, your clear-eyed guide to technology, power, and the future. Friday and Sunday, wherever you get your podcasts. Right. So we really wanted to do this research because on the one hand, we feel like a lot of the discourse is dominated from the global north which is quite obvious because there's significantly more resources, there's significantly more talent. Across Africa, we do have an issue of, you know, getting enough people into STEM, getting enough women into STEM. For example, if you wanted to find a feminist software developer who is also a woman, I think you would have a very, very difficult time. So we're also at a pivotal point where there is not much AI across Africa. And I think this is important because we've already started to see the negative repercussions of certain AI technologies used in the global north, you know, whether that's used to discriminate against black and brown bodies, whether it's used for surveillance purposes. And we're not yet we're not yet seeing this in the African context. So I feel like we're at a great point where we can start to reimagine or just imagine what we want the applications of AI in our context to look like before we get into a system of having technologies that have more harms than goods. So we really want to look at, you know, if AI, big data, whatever is being used in our context, how do we, how do we implement them in a way that really benefits women, that really benefits marginalized groups? Because On the one hand, a lot of governments and civil society are very reactive. So, for example, a government will procure a certain type of technology and then we all react to it like, oh, that's very negative. But my question is, how can we be more proactive in saying this is what we want rather than saying this is what we don't want? So and it's also a matter of, you know, as I said earlier, we really don't have good large data sets in the African context to even make use of AI in any productive way. I think the biggest data sets you'll ever come across are telco data, for example. Oftentimes, they, most of the telcos across Africa are belong to foreign companies, whether they're in India or France, um, some in South Africa. So at this point, you know, we can decide, okay, this is the kind of technology we want. This is the kind of data we need. These are the kinds of systems we need to put in place. And we need to constantly audit this whole pro- process. So For example, can we lead with gender audits where whatever AI technology we bring, we constantly audit it every year to see the positive and the negative impacts on women, on on, on marginalized groups, on, you know, minority groups, for example. So that's really where we want to go with it. And we hope that we can work closely with different governments, regional bodies like the AU, and continue to give these suggestions because 
the fact is many many technologies are procured because of deals with foreign countries right and there's a lot of money to be made there in in procurement so in some ways like can a very small segment of civil society influence these decisions maybe maybe not but at at the very least we need to try so that's the angle that we're coming in from this leads on really nicely to something else which is another report that you did with policy around uh, Afrofeminist data futures. And we'd love to hear a bit more about this. So could you tell us a bit about what Afrofeminism is, what it's specifically claiming in the context of technology, and what your report um, on Afrofeminist data futures um, would love to see or bring about or achieve? Right. Okay. Another great question. So Afrofeminism, African feminism, basically centers our feminism on our lived experiences as African women. Because if you look at, you know, mainstream feminism, I would be referred to as a woman of color, which implies that there is a colorless woman somewhere who is who is the focus of this movement, right? So in just from the very words that I use, there's, there's very much this sense of othering of, you know, the majority of the world. And as an African woman, there are some different experiences that we have felt. For example, a very big one would be colonialism. You know, how has that impacted our culture? How has that impacted who we are till today? So, for example, maybe in the past we had a culture where in some places men and women want equal footing or there were different um, norms. And then, you know, we had a very big influence from Christianity, from Islam, which brought a very, very different worldview. And so now we're kind of a mix of all these different cultures. There's a lot of rejection of our original culture. And, you know, till today, we feel the effects of colonialism in, in very real ways. And also, if you then look at also things like, you know, being judged for your color, racism, class issues. So there's just this this different intersectionality based on who you are as an African woman. And African feminism really grounds that and focuses specifically on what our needs are as an African woman. And this was really something that I wanted to bring to technology because as we've been discussing through this podcast, where our unique needs need to be taken into account, and historically, they have not. And that's really where all our research is coming from, where we're trying to say, yes, on one hand, we don't have the amount of funding you have. We don't have the amount of technologists that you have. But, you know, we're here. We're a large proportion of the world. For example, Africa has 1.5 billion people. We have the fastest growing population. But we're always constantly judged by economy, of course. We have very small markets. We have very small spending capacities. So we're often overlooked. But that, you know, we're still human beings, we still have a very important place, we still have a lot to offer. And it's important for us to give out our perspectives, and make sure that they're available, make sure that people don't say it's, you know, there's a lack of information, we really want to put this out there, put our perspectives, put our needs. So that's really what grounds all our work. And so similarly, this work um, on Afro-feminist data futures is about understanding how feminist movements across Africa make use of data in terms of their movement building. And so generally, we looked at how do they use data? What are the challenges? What are the opportunities? And what are the recommendations? So it was really fun to put together because we got to map out many feminist movements across the continent. We got to chat with 
feminists doing such important, amazing work. And we got to understand what their pain, their frustrations, and their hopes are on how their data can be used, how it can be used ethically, how it can be used responsibly, how you could work with governments to make sure our needs are met. So it was really fun to put together, and I really encourage you all to read the report. It's also has some illustrations from me. As I said, I'm also part-time artist, so I really enjoy putting my art into the work that we do. And yeah, so that's basically what we're trying to achieve. We're trying to put our viewpoints out there, and we're trying to make sure that people see us, people know our needs, and that people address them. So what does it mean to do Afrofeminist work in a civil society space? Oh, that's such a loaded question. I feel like you could do a whole podcast on this. So it's interesting. It's I think it's um, it's a mix of waking up each day feeling very optimistic and then, you know, the next day feeling like screaming. Because, for example, civil society is often funded by donors. And as I already mentioned, like in Africa, we tend to have fewer resources because of historical reasons already mentioned. And so a lot of the funding in this space, especially working on things like digital rights, data governance, a lot of the funding comes from foreign countries, comes from the global north. So it often feels like, you know, you're, you, all, you always have to, and I think this is, this is the issue with development work all across the continent, is that oftentimes you don't get to set your own agenda because you have to follow where the donor funding is. And it's very, very replicative of, you know, neo-colonial structures where um, you have little say in what you do. The funding comes from abroad. They dictate what you can work on. Who you? I mean, for example, <laughs> there was a call for proposals on disinformation, but it was very much grounded in attacking, you know, China and Russia. And it's very strange. It's like, that's your own agenda. You know, you want to do that. But why are you coming to African countries and asking us to make this our agenda? And of course, it's a very political issue because, you know, it, for whatever reason. But it's just that, you know, it's it just feels like they they bring their proxy fights, you know, to third countries that really don't. We don't have the time. We don't have that. We're struggling with our own issues. We don't have time to fight your own fights. So sometimes it's it's just so infuriating that you know that we're so dependent on these kind of funding structures. But on the other times. I get to work on projects that I find so, so, so exciting. I get to work with amazing people. I get every day I learn more about feminism. I learn more about the struggle. And there again, it's, you know, it's a combination of, wow, you know, we've come this far. I was just on a Twitter space this weekend and Twitter space is, it's wow. Like number of people you can get on there and have a conversation. It's really amazing. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't hop on to Clubhouse when it was, when it was rising, but I'm totally into Twitter space. And it's amazing to see people having these conversations and really, you know, shutting down the misogynists in such a powerful way. And then on the other hand, you know, you read certain threads about how women are so mistreated, you know, till today and how we're so chained by patriarchy, by misogyny. And every day is just such an amazing learning experience. And I feel like there's so much work that we could do in this space. And that is, is very exciting for me. There's so much that needs to be done. And that's what keeps me going. So all this to say, it's it's definitely a mix of um, a lot of frustration and a lot of excitement that I am able to do this work. 
Yes, definitely. And we're very, very lucky to have you doing this work as well. So we just want to say thank you so much for appearing on our podcast. And for our listeners, we will definitely link you to these reports that we've been discussing. They're fantastic. And so that you can access them easily. And so, yes, thank you so much again, Nima, for coming on our show. It's been really, really delightful and amazing to chat to you. And we hope to chat to you again soon. Thank you so much for having me. This episode was made possible thanks to our generous funder, Christina Gould. It was written and produced by Dr. Eleanor Drage and Dr. Kerry Mahrath and edited by Laura Zamulyonita.